Hi guys, thank you so much for joining me for my interview with Brian H. Kim. I decided to do the screen before the interview this time because when we hit record, we just kind of started talking and continuing the conversation we started before I hit record and skipped the intro. So welcome. We're going to be talking today about the music that Brian wrote for the film that just came out this weekend. Spoiler alert. Let's get into it. Um. Thank you. Oh, it's fun. I just started a new film yesterday, so. Congrats. Mm -hmm. That really fun beginning of the project part where you have no idea what's going to happen. And like, at least for me, sometimes I like, I, I, I get the project, I have the meetings and, you know, write the demos for it. And then I start the project and I'm just kind of like, oh no. <laughs> I convinced them that I knew what I was going to do on this project. And now I actually have to figure out what I'm going to do on this project. <laughs> you know? Well, the director yesterday, so I got the temp tracks um, with the cut when they first pitched the film to me. It was very mm -hmm. minimalist piano music. They had literal um, Philip Glass in there. I was like, okay, mm -hmm. cool. So I go into the pitch meeting like that. And they're like, actually, we want soul music. And we want like complex percussion. And we want it to sound really Southern. I'm like, cool, I can do that too. Didn't get that from your attempt tracks, but that's a possibility. You got to roll with it. That's so much of the job is just like adapting and 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 when there's a change, you know. Even on spoiler alert, there were some changes too. Like um, there were there was a, there was a time in the middle where we had been going along for a little while, and then uh, Showalter and Jim Parsons were like what if the score sounded like Radiohead? And I was like, that's cool. I like Radiohead. That is not what we've been doing so far. We're going to go down this path and we're going to see where it goes. And ultimately that's not where we landed, but it was an interesting, but just like a thought experiment to see like how such a drastic change of direction can change what the story is. It really changed the whole vibe of the story. I and mean, that was something that we wanted to play with, but it ultimately wasn't, wasn't the right choice. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm also like, genuinely surprised uh that you say like jim parsons was like oh what if it sounded a bit like radiohead i never would have guessed that he was you know one of the people talking to the composer but that's really cool yeah he, he was the producer on the film um he was actually one of the people that first uh shepherded it into uh, existence um because he read the book and then it was his production company that optioned it at the, at the very beginning and so um yeah he was on all the email chains and was uh coming in with notes he had a lot of um sort of song ideas coming into the project. Um, some songs that would influence a score, some songs that would just be in the uh, on the soundtrack. Um, but yeah, he, he was really passionate about the whole thing from top to bottom. And so um, whenever I would, you know, see that have an email conversation with him, it was very clear that it was it, he, he cared a lot about it. And he was never going to just sort of run on autopilot in, in, in any way. He was really going to put in the thought and just you know, like the Radiohead thing, just like try different thought experiments just just to see like, is this going to be like a little bit better? Is this, is this going to improve the storytelling in some way? No, I love that. In my experience, when an actor is also a producer on the film, I almost never like talk to them. I'm talking to the other producers. But yeah, I yeah, love, yeah. especially with his own music background that he was in on this. Yeah, yeah, because he's done so much theater and he like, he, you know, he's, he's, he's into that sort of thing and is just such a smart well-rounded eloquent person i've come to discover um and just like a lovely human being who really just like wants to make 
good art that people will connect with and and and, and appreciate. Hearing him talk about, I listened to him on a podcast the other day. Um, I believe he was on Keep It, uh, that podcast called Keep It, and he uh, was talking about his time on Big Bang Theory and how so much of it was based on rhythm and just like finding, like there's a very specific timing to the show and looking at that almost like singing musical phrases when you're getting through like that get the timing and understanding like the crescendo of a phrase and where the phrase is supposed to end and how the humor really hinges on that and just like his thoughtfulness in the way he approached his his part on that show which is a difficult part like the the, the language and the density of language on that show is, is is really impressive and so how he was able to consistently week after week find like like the top levels of TV comedy, just like the best TV comedy that was out at the time. He was the best actor and the best TV comedy out at the time. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, I use music to memorize everything. That's how I memorize oh, really? everything in my chemistry class. Was I, <laughs> I, I was like, this is a song now. How else am I supposed to memorize this citric acid cycle, which I have now yeah. never used again. But. Yeah, I was pre-med in college uh, for a year and so uh, studied lots of chemistry and, and, and calculus and, and all these things I do not use anymore at all. It's gone. I thought I was going to be an aerospace engineer and I was a National High School aerospace scholar. And then oh. in my academy, we went to NASA to do some work for a little while. And it was there that I discovered I hate engineering. So <laughs> yeah, like I, when so I, now I, was I in, do this. When I was in college, I I remember uh, at my end of the first semester, um, I went to I went to Yale for undergraduate, which is in Connecticut, and bitter winter is just like brutal winter, and so uh, I I thought it was a perfectly fine thing to schedule my chemistry lab, which is a three hour class. Uh, like Friday afternoon from like four to seven or like two to five, something like that. Just like something that was like, when I entered the building, it was light. And then the building had no windows, or at least my lab room had no windows. And when I exited the building, it was dark. And like, you know, it would be sunny and warm when I would enter. And then suddenly it'd be like 20 degrees when I exited the building. And I had friends who would go to those chemistry labs and they would be so passionate about it and be like, so like in it and just like, interested in the work and I would leave that lab every Friday just so depressed just sad about you know life choices and thinking is this what I'm going to have to do for the next like 15 years if I want to become a doctor or whatever and so yeah pre-med did not last long pre-med that that first semester of pre-med I was just like no um, and I always took music classes all throughout college I, after I was done with pre-med I went to computer science just thinking like that would be a good career path for me i really liked technology it was something that i could sell to my parents and be like listen i'm not going to be a doctor but hey bill gates is like super rich and look at what he studied and i'm going to study this and that's what's going to get me through um and i stuck with that for a couple for another two or three years of college but um was always taking music classes and really enjoyed the music classes and always really excelled in the music classes and so in a, in a way that i was not excelling in computer science i was like a solid c c minus student in computer science um and just uh yeah, I, it was it just, a, which is to say that for a lot of people, I, and I know maybe especially people of color or children of immigrants or something like that, it can be really hard to want, yeah, who to want to do 
a creative path, as I'm sure you've probably know, you've seen yourself and then having to have that conversation with your family, with your parents, and when they're paying money for your education, when they sacrifice so much to come to this country, it can be really hard. Um, and I really fought against it. I really tried to do something other than music and it just didn't pan out. And now my parents now are super supportive or like the biggest fans. And it just, it took a little while, even after I moved out here, um, just to show them that this is a thing that you can do and that it was making me happy. And I could support a family and, you know, buy a house and, and, and have that sort of thing just based entirely on creative work. Um, but now they're just like, they couldn't be, they couldn't be more pleased and, and just mm -hmm. impressed by all this stuff. Yeah. I was really lucky. I'm a, a daughter of a Filipina immigrant myself. My grandmother yeah. brought her family over. So she become a fashion designer in San Francisco. No way. <laughs> so we got, That's we got cool. the artsy genes, but also 70% of the family still became nurses. Okay. Okay. So the balance is there. It's, it's what they you know, it, it, it fits. So, but there is that carve out for you mm -hmm. that was already planted by your grandma. That's, that's rad. Mm -hmm. That's oh, really yeah. cool. But also when I get sick and I'm visiting family, there's suddenly <laughs> eight nurses who all arrive and are like, don't give her that medicine. Give her this one. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're also getting that Filipino fire. That's like the argumentativeness. <laughs> and they're like, I am right. You are not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, that's fun. Yeah. All of, all of the arguing. <laughs> but Speaking it's of things that they're all, just, they're all trying to take care of you it comes from love oh my gosh yes some of them still don't think i have a real job but it does come from love yeah no that's hard i when i was in college i my my first internship was at a music studio in new york city and i went out to dinner with a um a lot i had a lot of extended family living uh, sort of in like the long island in the in, in the, the boroughs and so uh, i would go and visit them and just i had this uncle who was just like so how much money are you making every week like at your internship and i was like nothing it is an unpaid internship i am getting their food i am getting their coffee i'm running the hard drives from one place to another across manhattan and just like the vibe and the look that i got from him was just like brutal and now like super cool with it He's super into it. His daughter is a cellist and was like super into like talking to me about not a professional cellist was like a really, really uh, like high achieving cellist as, as a student. And now he was like super into it. She worked at her, his daughter worked at Spotify for a little while. And so he was like seeing sort of like the ins and outs of like music industry stuff. And so um, they come around is what I'm saying. Yes. If only all of my coworkers came around. I'm production manager at a company now. And I had somebody last week say, you're an intern, right? I'm like, no, I'm your boss. Ah, that's fine. Why do you think I keep telling you what to do? I know. And like, I mean, also for you, you know, you are, you know, a queer woman. I'm I, sorry, I don't really know exactly how you identify. But yes, that's how you identify. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so like having somebody like that in a position of authority is still like, not really status quo, as I'm sure you see. I think see that's everything. why they assumed I was an intern. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it can, and how old are you? I'm 22. Yeah. And so, like, that too, like having a boss or a superior who is younger than you is, is going to like rattle some folks, you know? It's weird for me because, um, so I'm 41. I turned 41 last week. And so I'm like middle age now. But, you know, when I go to these recording sessions and when I'm in meetings with with producers and, and directors and stuff, like 90% of the time I'm younger than mm -hmm. them just because they've been in, in town longer, 
or, or, or for whatever reason, or like, especially if I go to have like a general meeting at a studio, like all the studio heads are older than me because they, they had to sort of climb the ranks and that sort of thing. Um, but then when I'm, when you're a composer on a, on a movie, technically you're the head of the music department, you know, that's, that's kind of a weird thing. And so, um, you know, uh, especially with spoiler alert, it being my first studio feature film release. Like I'd done like indie feature films, but not like a studio one that was backed and produced by, you know, Focus, which is owned by Universal. Um, they, uh, you know, I'd be on these email chains with uh, with executives and, and heads of music at, at Focus, sort of just like asking what I wanted to do and asking my opinion, like the way that I wanted to do things. And thankfully, I'd, I'd, I've been doing this long enough. I moved to LA in 2007. I've been doing this long enough that I was very comfortable with my workflow. And uh, Showalter, I'd worked with enough that I knew that he was confident in the way that I wanted to do things on this movie. That's why he, he approached it, uh, me with it in the first place, that I could at least approach those conversations with um, a feeling of experience and confidence and, and knowing, you know, that that if I wanted to get something done, I was going to have, you know, Showalter's faith behind me. And so... Uh, I think if I had had those conversations earlier, I think uh, like in, in my career, I think maybe a little more imposter syndrome would have come. I still, everybody has imposter syndrome forever. I feel like, I feel like if you say you don't, you're lying. But um, I think if I had been approached, you know, when I first moved out here in my mid twenties, I think if I had been in those conversations, then I think I maybe would have felt a little bit more like I was kind of BSing my way through it. And I was going to sort of figure it out later, which maybe would have led to my own anxieties. Uh, but I think, doing this film at this point in my career, I think was, was really good timing. And that um, I could, I could feel like I, I could steer the ship. And like, I, I knew how to get from point A to point Z uh, throughout the process. Um, but yeah, it can be hard feeling like, you know, still me, me being 41 and feeling like still like a younger person in the room, or at least like a, maybe like a less experienced person in the room. Mm -hmm. Well, as you mentioned, this is the third project, I believe that you've done with Joe Walter. How has your guys's relationship developed from when you were first paired together to mm. now you've done a feature film i know yeah so the first project i did was uh, hello my name is doris which uh, was um sort of with him i think of a, a film that was going to sort of change the trajectory of his career he had directed another film uh prior to that called the baxter that I think is a great movie, but it's very niche and I think didn't really hit the mainstream. And so um, he was doing Hello, My Name is Doris as a sort of like a career rejiggering. And I'm not sort of pulling this out of thin air. I've heard him talk about it in interviews uh, and stuff. And so um, I was really surprised and very obviously thrilled that he hired me on it because I hadn't done a ton of film work at that point. I was primarily doing additional music on TV shows and like some additional music on some on on some uh, indie films. I had the only solo credit that I had at that point was a Disney show called Star versus the Forces of Evil. So that which is a very very different it's an amazing thing. show. Thank you very much. Say. I loved that show. That show it changed got me my through life. Many babysitting gigs in high school. I will say. Aha! Very cool. That was, uh, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad we could be with you through that. Uh, but yeah, so I felt like going into this, the, the meeting that I had with Showalter that I was, I was like, this is a, this is a big swing. He's been around much longer. I was such a huge fan of Wet Hot when I met, when I met him, it was just like, it was weird to be talking to him. Um, but our meeting went really well. He's so thoughtful and wants to hear your thoughts. He's not the sort of director who's going to come in 
with a really sort of rigid, like hardcore auteur vision of, of, of what it's going to be. Like he wants to have that conversation. He wants it to be a collaboration. And so when I when I had that meeting with Showalter for Doris, I, you know, the, the character of Doris is, is a hoarder. Um, she has a sort of sad, solitary life that she gets opened up when she starts um, having romantic feelings for a younger man. And I, I looked at her hoarding very, very literally and, and, and was just like, I'm going to make demo tracks out of like empty shampoo bottles and like empty boxes and just the things that you would find in sort of a, a hoarder's house. Um, and a lot of that stuff didn't end up being in the final version of the film. But I think what he really liked about it was just that I was willing to go there and just willing to try anything to see if this was the puzzle piece that was going to complete the puzzle of, of the film. Um, and so... You know, with that film, there wasn't a ton of score in it, and it was a very low budget film. And so uh, the process went very, very quickly, and the recording session was very small, and it premiered at South by Southwest without any distribution, and eventually found distribution and, 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 and did pretty well. Um, so I went from that, working from him, to working on the first season of Search Party, um, for which he wanted sort of like that sort of... Uh, uh, sort of towing the line sensibility uh, for with Doris, because that was like a comedy and a sort of sad drama. And then Search Party was also a comedy, but was also like a mystery and sort of had like a sleuth sort of thing to it. And and also the main characters are were millennials going through like a very sort of searching, not really understanding themselves uh, in their life. So it was, it was, it was a lot of drama. Uh, it was a lot of genres there too. And so he approached me for that. And that was really cool in that it was an electronic score. And so he could sort of see that side uh, of what I was going to do, but was a, a, a show with episodes, which is very different than working on Doris uh, as, as a film. And so um, I think from those two projects, uh, when he came to me for, for um, spoiler alert, um, I think he was looking for that sort of character work that I did with Doris, but the genre blending that we were doing with those two previous projects. Um, and by the time, you know, that I started working on Spoiler Alert, you know, I feel like we had a we had a shorthand and we sort of understood how the other person worked. And and he was he just sort of he just gave me a cut of the film. We didn't have a spotting session. We didn't sit down and talk about it with each other. He was just like, look at the film, do what you think is right. And then we'll start talking. And he was like, don't wait, like, don't send me like a batch of, of cues. Like, I want you to send me like hot off the press, export the cue, put it to picture. Oh my God. Dropbox it to me immediately. I want to have this conversation. And he was on the East Coast um, because most of post-production for the film was in New York. And so he was three hours ahead of me. I'm I'm in LA. And so um I would get messages from him which must have been because I was getting them late at night. So he must have been awake at like one, two, three in the morning because I would just get like long text chains from him when I was getting ready for bed here because um, that's when he was done with shooting that day and he was just going through all of it. And I think his brain was buzzing from his shoots or I mean, his brain is always buzzing. If you talk to him, <laughs> like his, his brain is always coming up with something and you're always sort of playing catch up. Um, but uh, yeah, he wanted it to be uh a back and forth he didn't want it like any one of us to like just sort of set get set into like a large portion of ideas and present it to the person it was going to be an evolution you know um and i think we wouldn't have been able to hit the ground running with such speed had we not been working with each other for six seven years up uh, uh, up to this point which is great it's the longest um for me it's the longest uh 
creative relationship that I've had since moving out here, the longest, the, the most consistent. I've known people for longer and have worked with them on various things, but this has been sort of like the, the, the most consistently running one. Um, and it's really cool to consider him a friend at this point and sort of a joint collaborator because he's somebody that I looked up to for so long. Um, Wet Hot came out when I was in college. And so uh, he was somebody who was like already doing it when I was like just still sort of a kid. Um, and now to be able to do this with him and to know that um, like we both have like the best interests of the project at heart and we're, we're both going to trust each other that we're going we're gonna to get there. It's you really can't ask for anything more than that in a, in, a, in, a, in a collaborative relationship. That's really cool. One thing you did mention there was part of the reason he came to you for this project was kind of those like mixed genre things. <laughs> and something I really liked about the score was the unique hybrid of the atmospheric EDM and then <laughs> also prepared piano, which I'm a big fan of, plus strings, which is always good. <laughs> and it's di very different in that way from your traditional December holiday movie. Mm. How did you come to choose that instrumentation? Yeah, um, it was a bit of a journey. Like I, like I said, like we didn't come into it either of us knowing what we were gonna do. Um, with the with the piano stuff, um, Showalter had listened to. I released a piano album last year, uh, just sort of like a pandemic project that I wanted to do, um, and it was sort of like a neoclassical, neo musical theater kind of sort of thing that I. Cause the sort of thing that I would have wanted to listen to in high school or college. Um, and he'd heard some of that and he knew that I was a pianist and he, there was one iteration of the score that was sort of like a neoclassical piano sort of thing, uh, which was a little bit too much for the subject matter of the film. It was sort of overpowering what the film was going to be. Um, but, but piano was always going to be part of the score. And one of the things that was weird about having such a, like a, like a classical iteration of piano was that it was just too bright and powerful and loud. And so there was a way I wanted to treat the piano in a very specific way to sort of round out the edges. A very common way to do that is what's called felt piano. Now there's a lot of really nice felt piano sample libraries out there. And a lot of my early demos for it were done with like a felt piano sample library. Um, but it wasn't like quite right. And like, I also wanted to record live piano. I wanted to record my piano. I like my piano, uh, the upright piano behind me. And so, um, I just started putting different things in the piano and just trying different things. My my very first experiment was trying to be super literal again, like with the doors, like with the shampoo bottles and like the boxes and stuff like that. I was like, what if I put medical gauze in this piano? This is a very medically oriented film. What if I put gauze in here and I put it in there and it does not sound good? And so it just like it does not sit in the mix. It just like kills the sound. Something about it's just like too puffy. I think there's too much like um, like padding in it. The gauze so, doesn't like get stuck on the wires, does it? No, and it doesn't. Yeah, and so okay, that was a lot of like painter's tape just like very strategically placed so like I wouldn't rattle the wires or dull the wires or it was just like finding any piece of metal or wood that I could like get tape on that also I think messed things up a little bit it was just like too much going on and so I went to um I went to a fabric store I went to Michael's art store supply store and just like bought a bunch of fabrics and started cutting them in and what I eventually ended up with was like an old poly blend t-shirt uh I thought that was gonna work I thought that um even just like as an idea on like a meta level of being like this sort of old lived in thing, a lot of the movie is about sort of finding your rhythms in your own life and finding your rhythms for the loved one. And I thought like an old, really well-loved t-shirt was like a good symbol of that um, on a meta level, but like on a purely like uh, acoustic level, it had the right amount of, of, of roundness to the sound while still letting the tone uh, ring out 
so that was like a nice bounce. So like that's how the sort of like the 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 the, the piano ended up where it was. Um, in terms of like the atmospheric synth stuff, uh, that sort of came to pass um, in particular because of one scene. There's a scene in the film uh, where uh, Jim Parsons' character Michael uh, is work is in a waiting room in a hospital. Um, he's waiting for Kit's biopsy to come back, and he. He's a very sort of, he has a lot of ticks. Um, the, the the character he like really loves um, ticks is the wrong word. It's not like he's he he has like a any sort of like um, uh, mental capacity things or but it's it's more just like he's like a, he's a he's a quirky person, and so like he really likes diet coke. He really likes television. Um, he was like he reads a ton of magazines in 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 the scene, and so um, our first pass is we were sort of trying to play into that sort of jitteriness of it and it just wasn't working because like we're not really playing the humor of the scene we're playing his mental space in the scene and his character knows that it's going to be cancer his his mother went through cancer he just knows in his gut in his bones like that's what it's going to be and so we wanted to give more space for his thought process and for his emotions in there and i, I did a pass with um it's primarily a, a soft synth called Pigments um, by Arturia that I really love and I think is really flexible and, and has like a really nice wide range of sounds that it can produce, produce while also still being capable of a lot of warmth. And so I layered a bunch of those synths, uh, uh, a bunch of patches from, from that together to create this sort of like kind of um, like swirly, lots of decay, atmospheric uh, vibe on uh, behind the piano and then along with some muted strings to really give it sort of like a almost Thomas Newman cinematic space mm -hmm. to it. Um, and something about that really clicked with pretty much everybody on, on, on the film, everybody, you know, I even <laughs> felt like there was a little bit of like Radiohead vibe within that. I know yeah. we didn't like really make everything sound like okay computer or anything like that, but that sort of spirit of blending a bunch of disparate elements to make it like be like an acoustic electronic hybrid is sort of at the heart of what Radiohead does. And so um, that that cue really clicked for everybody. Um, and then it was sort of off to the races. Uh, the next a really big cue where it also is is uh, plays really prominently is a a really crucial love scene um, in the latter acts of the film. Uh, there's no talking. It, it's, it's a pretty long scene and it's just on-screen action and is a very like, big emotional climax. And so that was another place where I really layered a lot and like really tried to let these elements all have their moment and let them all sing. Um, and that was a really hard scene too. And that one also, it, it worked out pretty well. And so then when it worked in these really key places, then we found that we could use it pretty much everywhere. Um, and it would provide a lot of warmth. It would provide um, a lot of emotion, but it would also give the characters the space that they needed and the audience the space that they needed so that we were never really hitting anybody over the head with the emotion that we wanted to, to portray. Yeah, I think especially with films that involve things like cancer, it's really easy for audiences to feel like they're being forced into feeling yeah. a certain way. Yeah. And giving people that space makes the film, one, feel less forced, but also honestly just less tropey. It lets the story really speak. I think so, them. yeah. No, I think you're totally spot on with that. I think, you know, when you have a movie like Spoiler Alert, and everybody knows how sad the movie is going to be. It's a true story. Like we know what what, what it's going to be. You know, you the don't... original book, the spoiler alerts in the title. 
the hero dies. Yeah, it's like, and originally the movie was called Spoiler Alert, The Hero Dies. And I think for marketing purposes, they probably shortened it, which I yeah. think is wise. But um, they, uh, yeah, it, 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 you don't need me for that. And I think that's a big difference in the way that films are scored now in the 21st century, as opposed to how they were scored like in the 1950s or, or you know, earlier, like mid-century, 60s, 70s, even the 80s and 90s, like throughout, I think most of the 20th century, there was a bit more of a sweep and like a bit more of a like flourish to a lot of emotional stuff. Um, and I just, I think that modern sensibilities and that was something we were also very keeping in mind that this was a modern love story of people from the 21st century having very like sort of uh, a, a very 21st century uh plot line um in that it was it, it, it needed to feel modern in its storytelling as well yeah so as you probably know i didn't get to watch the film beforehand i only got the score they didn't do screeners which is totally fine but i got to explore michael and kit through just their themes in the album mm. and it was really interesting because i felt like i could still understand the feelings of their relationship evolving through how their relationships theme and Michael's theme were developed yeah how did the what was the sketch process like when you were creating these themes did you know i want it here here and here and that's how it developed did they develop organically themselves first what was that like um there was a scene uh where uh Michael is um, making a bed out of his couch. It's right after that uh, hospital scene that I just mentioned. They're waiting for the biopsy. Kit is sleeping in the bed, but they are separated at this point, technically, in their relationship. So Michael asked him to stay at his place because he was still in a lot of pain, but Michael did not want to share the bed with him because they were technically not together anymore. Um, and so there's a, it's not a long scene. I want to say it's like maybe 40 seconds long. It's not a long cue, but Michael is is putting sheets and pillows on his couch um, in his home uh, to 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 sort of hunker down. And he's sort of like, Showalter said that he's, to look at it as like he's creating a, like his fortress. This is going to be his home base throughout this sickness. And you see him on that couch with those sheets uh, many times throughout the film. That's just sort of where his, his like his, his, his station is. Um, and so Showalter and I both thought this is a good place to try and figure out like what his theme is going to be. Which is funny because his theme is no longer in that scene anymore because yeah. we 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 ultimately realized that it would be better for the middle part of the film to pri primarily be Kit and Michael's theme together because they're doing this together. And so interjecting it, interrupting that with with his personal theme didn't seem to jive with with the flow of, of the score. Um, but yeah, that was a scene where I wrote cue after cue after cue just like trying to figure out this theme not just the melody i actually figured out the melody pretty early on uh the melody so michael's theme you can now hear um in the very opening cue uh the chord structure is laid out in the opening cue and then there's another very short cue where he's talking about his job those are both in the very beginning of the movie and then his theme goes away for much of the film because sort of it it sort of became connected to his own in, uh, independence and his individuality and then um once his life sort of turns into like a michael and kit life then michael and kit's theme sort of take over and then michael's theme doesn't come back until the very end of the film actually when he's saying goodbye to kit is when michael's theme comes back and then it it comes back uh, in the final act um which is a conscious choice. And I, so his theme actually comes back again in another cue called You Can Go Now, which is when he is saying goodbye to uh, to Kip. Um, Showalter is very keen on 
atypical chord changes. Um, usually when I would give him something that all sort of stayed in the same key and sort of did like primarily like expected diatonic stuff, it wouldn't really do it for him. He would just sort of, his ear would get bored by it, which is cool because then I could sort of explore like changing keys in the middle of- Honestly, Sorry, same. I don't <laughs> with keys yeah. intentionally. Sometimes it yeah. happens. Oh, this was in B minor. I'm like, oh, cool. But usually <laughs> that's like the furthest thing from my brain. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's interesting as a composer, it's interesting as a listener, it just sort of, you feel like you're being led down a path that's a little bit unexpected. And so Michael's theme, um, it sort of changes key in the middle of a phrase. And then at the end of the phrase, when I start the phrase back over again, I go back to the original key, but I don't really prepare it in any way. Um, so I think, and when I was originally thinking of it, it's in, the key starts in E flat. And then it, it, it modulates down a whole step in the middle of the phrase to D flat. And then the chord that it ends on in the phrase is the four of D flat. So it's G flat major. It ends in G flat major is the last chord in the theme. And then the melody immediately starts over again. And I just go back to E flat major, which is a weird change because you're going from like a, you're going from like a, if we're thinking of it in terms of E flat, we are in a major version of the minor third chord, which doesn't exist in the E flat scale. And then I'm just like, I'm just going back to E flat. It's like, yeah, here we go. I was gonna go back. I um, love chromatic mediants. I know, it's great, sounds cool. Even, I didn't expect that they were gonna go for it. I was just like, there's somebody in, somebody in production, mm -hmm. there's like dozens of producers that this has to get cleared by. Somebody's gonna say that this chord change sounds weird and that it sounds like weirdly clashy. And nobody did. <laughs> Everybody was just like, cool. Um, and I was like, I was, I was really stoked about that. I was like, all right, this is not what I've expected to have ended up in this, in this theme, but this is what's here. And, and I'm grateful for it, you know? And it happens in very key moments in the film. Um, like the, like the saying goodbye to, to Mike, to the Michael saying goodbye to Kit and is, is a very talky, very emotional scene. And just in the middle of that scene, I'm just like, ah, we're going to do this weird chromatic shift again. Here we are. And they, 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 they went with it. And it was, uh, I think really a good sign of their faith in the process and their willingness to be a little bit different. You know, like to not do the expected thing. No, I love that. I I think people need to use chromatic thirds more. I mean, <laughs> one of the most iconic moments in film music history is The Lion King, The Circle of Life, when Simba's raised into the air, major flat oh, yeah. three. We love a yeah. chromatic thirds we are do what shifts the emotion without yes. it making it feel too unnatural. It's not like you're yeah. going to the flat five. It's yeah. awesome. I love it. Something, so I'm working on um, uh, a series for Netflix now that I've, I signed an NDA. I can't like say what the series That's is. That's okay. I was going to say, I, I signed NDAs for Netflix all the time. I was like, I know I'm going to have to cut this. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say what it is, but I am <laughs> going to say that I am writing a bunch of songs um, in sort of like a K-pop style. Chromatic harmonies are something that I'm coming across a lot in listening to a lot of current K-pop. Um, and just like one of the things that's really nice about K-pop is like very often producers and songwriters give zero Fs about rules. And they're just like, what if this song was actually three songs that we're just going to mush together? We're just going to change in the middle and you're going to sort of follow along with this. And the audience is like, yeah, OK, it's a good beat. We're just going to keep on going, you know. Um, but there is a lot of like movement from like one to flat two back to one or one to flat three back to one, just like really sort of um, 
things that if you're if if like in when you think of pop structures and when you think of pop chord changes, you wouldn't necessarily associate with it, but it works. And it's like really sort of it's hearing those sort of ch progressions in mainstream pop music is really cool. Oh, no, I love that. We last semester I took a history of women in music videos course. Mm. Okay. For music history, and we talked a lot about K-pop. We even had a K-pop dance day, so okay. love that. But yeah. that's not what this podcast is about. And I already no. saw the Blinks try to cancel Two Set Violence, so I'm not going to have them come. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to go down that path. No. Uh, I, I fun fact: Paganini is not alive. That's all I have to say to them. <laughs> that is true. Yes, that is very true. Oh, no. So. Oh gosh. When you're developing these character themes as they change throughout the movie, as you mentioned, you do have those chromatic thirds. That's consistent. What do you think about changing as the characters change? Um, yeah, with this movie, there we did try various versions of changing things as, as things went along. Um, in this movie, there's not a ton of scores, about 20 minutes. And so I think we had to be really judicious about how far we would push any one idea to the point where it's becoming not recognizable anymore. Because when you only have 20 minutes of score and you want the score to sound cohesive and not like a pastiche, you, you really have to really lean into the ideas, like two or three ideas tops and like really stick to them. Something that we did do in this score that was actually um, the mixer's idea. The mixer engineer is named Greg Hayes. He's sort of like triple A-list right now. He's doing stuff for Marvel. He does like, he did... Uh, he did Encanto and Frozen, and he's 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 on fire, you know. Um, and I've known him for a while, and just uh, was really eager to work with him on this. And so, um, when we were mixing the score, there's a cue called um, "Oh my gosh!" Sometimes the hero dies, uh, which is towards the end of the movie, and it is uh, a version of Kit and Michael's theme. Um, but if you listen closely. Um, there are pronounced bass harmonics uh, in the synth in the the latter version than in the earlier versions of it. Um, really audible in like a theater if you have like a big subwoofer or if you're listening on really good quality headphones, you could hear it. Um, and that was not in the original synth patch. That was not in my original mock-ups or anything like that. But um, Greg, uh, more as much as he is a mixer, he is a storyteller. And that I think he's really, really good at looking at a film and seeing what sonically the film needs at a certain point. And in addition to just notes, just like sonically, what does the score need to feel like here? Um, and he's like, a, he's also a very emotional, like thoughtful, empathetic guy. And so when he was watching the film and saw that we were sort of in the final act, and this is after Kit's death, he was just like, I just wanted the score to feel like it was enveloping me a little more, like it was sort of giving me a hug, you know? And so he was like, I tried this. You can nix it if you want, but I just think it sounds cool. I just like, I put this plug in on your synth patch. It really brings out the lower harmonics. You can feel it in the room a little more. Like you feel the synth is sort of everywhere as opposed to just in your ears. And he played it and I was like, that's the stuff. That's it right there. Like that mm -hmm. is giving the, that's giving the scene the weight that I think that I didn't really think it needed sonically when I was writing it. But when I heard it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what that should be. That's amazing. And so um, I think more than changing what the themes, how the themes were laid out or the instrumentation behind the themes, that it was that sort of sonic tweaking that we ended up doing more. 
um, which is a, it's an interesting way of thinking of like filters and 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 sub frequencies as a means of storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. But I think when you're working with electronic stuff a lot, like that can be the substitute for orchestration in changing uh, the way a theme evolves. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We're at time, but I loved having you on the show. You spoke very, I was going to say emphatically, that is not the right word. (laughs) You spoke very genuinely about your experience with the film, and I'm so excited to finally actually get to watch it in theaters this weekend. I hope you get the chance to go see it in a theater again, too. I'm sure you've already seen it. Uh, Yeah, I've seen it a lot, but I'm going to see it again. I'm going with my friends tomorrow, and we're going to watch them all cry. You get to see the pain you inflict. You get to see the pain. Love that for you. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you enjoy it as well. Thank you so much. And before I forget, I am tossing the latest film I just did in the chat for you to check out if you want to. Yes. Because there's no key. Love it. Going to listen to that today. Excited for that. (laughs) I'm copying that to myself now because I know when you exit Zoom, Mm -hmm. it deletes the chat. I don't want that. Got it. City of Forget-Me-Nots. Excellent title. Looking forward to that. Thank you. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. Happy holidays. And I hope you enjoy seeing your friends cry from the pain that you have inflicted upon them. I hope you enjoy crying yourself. It's a good cry. It's a cathartic cry. (laughs) All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye.